gracious and loving God, we thank you for bringing us safely to a new day, and we ask your blessing upon us as we study your holy word, that we would learn something meaningful and true from Exodus chapter 3, that our discussion would be full of intelligence and charity and wisdom, and that you would continue to help us find our place in this story as we seek to live into our identity as your liberated people with a call to bring promise to others. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt 
to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days' journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. I will bring this people into such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman living in the neighbor's house for jewelry of silver and of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. Thank you for that beautiful reading. As we get into Exodus chapter 3, Moses has been in the land of Midian for a while. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, whose name we're told is Jethro. Um, you might be confused because last week this was Raul. And so scholars point really just to different literary sources that both names crept in. It's a good reminder that the Old Testament in its final form was redacted and kind of put together into one coherent narrative, but that a lot of different literary sources went into this with different traditions. And I believe that moving forward, the father-in-law will be Jethro. But last week he was Reuel. And um, so Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Moses is a shepherd. And this shepherd who will lead his flock out of slavery, of course, prefigures the one who said, I am the good shepherd. Uh, and so Moses is a shepherd leading his flock, and he comes to a place called Horab, the mountain of God. And this is, of course, uh, synonymous with Sinai. Uh, Horeb and Sinai are one and the same. And so Moses is at that place where the law will later be given. And there an angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. And this bush is blazing, yet not consumed. The Jewish scholar Rashi, his comment on this was that this was a sign of God's humility, that God would appear to Moses in a bush, speaks to uh, ultimately behind all the signs, all the wonders, a, a God who is humble, who lowers himself. And of course, as Christians, uh, I like this reading, right? Because it points us to Philippians 2, where though in the form of God, Jesus considers equality with God, not something to grasp, but he empties himself, he lowers himself. And Rashi said that this lowering of God is seen in God's choice to appear to Moses in a very simple bush. Now, others on Sunday said, you're overthinking this. This is just a practical thing. God has to get Moses's attention. And so uh, one way of doing that is by appearing as a burning bush. Either way, Moses says, I must turn aside and look. I must turn aside and look. And indeed, Moses does turn aside. And we're told that whenever the Lord sees that Moses turned aside, that's when God called. I think that's just worth noting. God didn't come and just bombard Moses. Um, God made a move. God appeared in a burning bush, but God had to wait 
till Moses was ready, till Moses could turn aside, and then God called. And I think that raises some questions for us, the reader. Uh, where is it that we need to turn aside? Where is God trying to get through to us? And uh, is there a place where once we turn aside, God will speak to us? But that order needs to be honored. God appears in the burning bush. God waits for Moses to do what only Moses can do, and that's turn aside. And once Moses does that, then God calls. And when God calls, he tells Moses to not come any closer. And we are introduced. Um, I don't want to say we're introduced to the holiness of God, because there are certainly moments, especially Genesis chapter 15, where the awesome otherness of God is really the theme. But there's also some places in Genesis where, um, for instance, uh, it's almost like God speaks to Abraham face to face as one speaks to a friend. Um, we don't get um, the come no closer, stay away from me, I'm a holy God. And, and that theme's really going to be amped up uh, in this story of God working with Moses and freeing the Hebrew people. We're going to move deeper and deeper into the otherness of God, the dangerous holiness of God. And that's how God leads. Take your sandals off. You are on holy ground. And then Moses hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. And again, this is not exactly how it played out with Abraham. Uh, Abraham was not ever afraid to look at God. That tradition that if you look at God, you will die did not really seem to be as present uh, in the book of Genesis with God working with the patriarchs. But here... Uh, it's very, very clear that that tradition that no one can look upon the face of the Lord and live is very much at play. And so once Moses goes through the proper protocols, knows that he can't look at God, um, God says to him, I've observed the misery of my people and I know their sufferings. Uh, so first, my people, uh, this is the theme of election. God is choosing the Hebrew people. Uh, or rather, God has chosen the Hebrew people, the sons of Jacob, and God is being faithful to that covenant. Um, but it's not just I've observed their misery, but rather I know their sufferings. Uh, it's not that God knows in an intellectual way, but whenever you have that word know in Hebrew, it is a word that conveys intimacy. This God knows the sufferings of his people. And of course, this uh, for Christians prefigures a God who will know them so intimately, he will die on a cross. But this is a very personal knowing. God knows the suffering of his people, and God intends to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and a bunch of other people. And I say that because the salvation that God will work in their life will not be the end of the story. It will prepare them for the conquest. Basically, God will liberate them and then tell them to go do battle, right? They're going to have to drive out these people. It's not, I'm going to deliver you, and there's this unoccupied land that's wonderful that you get to settle in and live happily ever after, but God will save them and then send them to fight. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of good parallels there with how Paul 
thinks of our salvation, right? We are baptized into Christ Jesus, but that's not the end of the story. In uh, Ephesians 6, he tells them to put on the full armor of God and then basically says we have a fight. And our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of this present darkness and the spiritual uh, wickedness in all the high places. And so Paul basically says, you've been liberated, but you've got a spiritual fight. And that is prefigured by God liberating the Hebrew people only so they can then go and fight for the promised land. But first, they have to go to Pharaoh. And um, God says to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you to this other person who pretends to be king and pretends to be God. And even though um, it's very clear that the God of Israel and Pharaoh of Egypt are not equals, there are some similarities in that both make claims about who they are. Both claim to be God. Both claim to have some sort of uh, other claim on the Hebrew people. Uh, Pharaoh uh, believes that he's the true king. Pharaoh believes that he's divine. Pharaoh believes that the Hebrews belong to him and that he can do with them whatever he wants. And the God of Israel basically says the same, right? Uh, I'm God. I'm king. These are my people. I can do with them whatever I want. And Pharaoh wants to enslave them, and the God of um, Israel wants to free them. And so there's going to be kind of a showdown of the gods. And the question is, who will win? Who is the true God? And uh, Moses will go to Pharaoh, uh, and, and basically that's what the showdown is going to be once we get down to the plagues. And of course, you and I know who the true God is, but that's being set up in Exodus chapter 3. Now, Moses has doubts uh, for understandable reasons. And he says, well, if I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask what his name is, what shall I say to them? And at this point, I believe Moses has been in the land of Midian for 40 years. Uh, I've got to go and, and check um, my sources, but I think that's right. And we don't really know what sort of interactions he's had with his family or with his people since fleeing Egypt. Uh, and frankly, what sort of relationships he had with them prior to leaving is also unclear. Um, um, we know that he was able to grow up in his house for a bit before they shipped him off to the palace, but we're just not clear how close he is or how well he knows these people or whether he's known at all. And so he's got some concerns and he wants to know, well, if they ask your name, what is your name? And um, what we have in the translation is say that my name is I am who I am. I've also seen it translated. I will be who I will be. I've seen it translated. I am that I am. And I've even seen uh, an outside source um, saying that it could be, I am he who endures. But basically, the answer is, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am the real thing. I am being itself. I am that which cannot be qualified. And whenever God names himself, I am, you can immediately see how scandalized people must have been when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, right? That is a divine claim. 
and it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter three. And God says, this is my title for all generations. This is who I am. And so go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, um, the God of your ancestors has sent me. They will listen to your voice. Um, notice how the instruction in verse 18 is to go a three days journey into the wilderness to make a sacrifice to the Lord our God. The request at the beginning is not to be freed from their um, slavery. Uh, in fact, all they're really asking for here is a three-day furlough to go worship their God. Now, God says, I know that Pharaoh's not going to answer this. I'm, I'm setting this guy up. But still, uh, it's worth noting that um, in antiquity, Egyptian slaves were often granted furloughs like this. And what's being requested is, is a very basic thing. Just give us three days off of work. Let us go worship our God and we'll come back. Uh, but of course, that's not going to be what happens, that uh, something much grander will take place. But the initial request is just a three days journey to go wilderness. Um, finally, we're told that when they leave, that they will plunder the Egyptians. And there's a little bit of a riddle in the text that leaves it not incredibly clear. Um, it says that you're going to find favor with the Egyptians so that if you ask for jewelry, they're going to give it to you. Basically, the Egyptians will eventually have their heart move and they're going to send you off with their stuff. And, and that metaphor of finding favor basically means they're going to do it voluntarily. They're going to want to do it. But then it says, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And that word plunder is a violent word. It means take um it, it's it's a word associated with war and spoils and so um whether or not the egyptians want to send the hebrews off with their gold or not the point is the hebrews will take it when they leave and the question is why and uh, we had some good conversation about this on sunday and eb offered a, a very practical point which is that well, they're going to be building a tabernacle and all sorts of stuff to worship the Lord their God. Where does that material come from? It comes from the Egyptians, right? And so the Egyptians are going to send the Hebrews off with the very stuff out of which the priestly garments and the tabernacle and all the adornments will be made. And I think there's something very figuratively and metaphorically beautiful about that, that the stuff that they produced in their slavery will be the material out of which all of the worshiping uh, stuff will be made. Um, and I think that we can kind of draw out the, the metaphorical implications of our life. Um, um, the other thing though, is that, I mean, there's a sense in which this is like reparations. I mean, they've been slaves for 400 years. Who do you think made this gold? Who do you think made the Egyptians rich? And so there's a sense in which this is also just justice. Like you've worked so hard for centuries, this stuff actually belongs to you. We're going to send you off with it. But the point, I think, is that God is not content just to free God's people. God wants his people to be wealthy, to be rich, to be full. And, and please don't think that I'm trying to suggest any literal equivalent with like a prosperity gospel. Uh, I just mean that that God wants his people 
to know abundance and, and God wants you to know abundance. We get in trouble whenever we think that's just material abundance and, and we build weird theologies around that. But, but the idea is that God doesn't want you just to be set free. God wants you to be full. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Uh, final thing I want to say, and then we'll go into some conversation. Uh, I don't want to overlook what it says in verse 7 and what it says in verse 12. I know their sufferings. I will be with you. I know their sufferings and I will be with you. And I say that because these two claims are really going to be the backbone of not just the book of Exodus, but what happens in the wilderness. And as that continues with the book of Joshua and the conquest narratives and, and the whole building of the monarchy, like it's all rooted. The covenant is rooted in God knowing our sufferings and God being with us. I know their sufferings and I will be with you. And so I just point that out because we will return to those two themes uh, quite frequently as we continue our study of the book of Exodus.